and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty, reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Today's guest is Karthik Suresh. Karthik and I went through school together at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. He previously interned at numerous companies, including Biometrics, Cloud Data, and Coursera. He now works as a software engineer at Blend, a fintech startup focused on digital lending. In this conversation, we cover what we would do differently going through college again, Karthik's decision to choose a startup over Facebook, and the trends and opportunities that he sees in fintech, education, and medicine. Although we don't talk about much related to machine learning, if you're a student or have an interest in startups, I think you'll find this conversation to be very useful. And with that, please welcome Karthik Suresh. Karthik, thank you for coming onto the show and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Thanks for having me, Charlie. When I heard about this idea, I thought it was pretty interesting. So glad to be glad to be part of the show. The first question I'm going to be asking everyone is how were you first exposed to computer science? What about it made you want to pursue it? Yeah, absolutely. I think to give a little background, uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, you know, heart of Silicon Valley. And you, know, you look left and right, there's you know, startups and tech companies. Uh, and my dad was a software engineer. Uh, but really, when I was growing up, I thought I would want to go into the medical field and be a doctor. You know, I saw a lot of value in you know, helping people. And I thought that would be, you know, the, that'd be the, the place where I'd have the most impact. And kind of around my freshman or sophomore year of high school, I realized that essentially, you know, if I, I was going to be a doctor, I, I wouldn't start practicing until like my mid thirties. And so I was like, wow, well, how can I make an impact uh, right now? And that's when I kind of discovered computer science. And, uh, you know, you can you know, build products right in high school. You can hack together different things and, and really create a huge impact. Um, and I'd always been good with numbers and math and logic puzzles, so I had a kind of natural affinity towards computer science. But it was right around there, I think, my you know, freshman or sophomore year of high school, where I kind of realized that you know computer science could be an avenue for for me to get that impact as well as you know get it kind of now. Wow, that's super interesting. Actually, I didn't know that you had 
well, one, I didn't know that you wanted to be a doctor. First, that's interesting because that was my original uh, profession choice as well. When I was in high school, I thought that I was going to go down that path. I don't know. And I don't know why this happened, but I turned out actually to be a lot more squeamish as I went th through high school. When I was coming into freshman year of high school, I thought, yeah, for sure I can be a surgeon. I definitely not afraid of blood or anything. And then a few years later, just couldn't do it. <laughs> like just couldn't even look at any of the videos about it. Couldn't even read about some of the stuff. And yeah, also interesting that you started so early. I also started relatively early in sophomore year. And it's funny because I, I hated it at first. I thought I was doing embedded programming to start. And I was like, oh yeah, this hardware stuff is so much better. This coding, co I was coding in Arduino and then later in just plain C uh, on ARM chips. I was like, God, this stuff is just tedious. It's horrible. No, I was saying that that's pretty interesting, actually. Like, I think in high school, when I was playing around with circuits, I kind of actually hated that part. I hated the, the hardware level. And when I got to, like, you know, just playing around with the computer and, and seeing kind of the output of, of a program, that's where it kind of clicked to me. And I was like, wow, this is magic. And playing with that lower level stuff, that's where I was like, oh, man, this is so boring. Like, you know, playing with chips and, and trying to, yeah, I was messing around with Arduinos and I didn't really see too much value there. But it's pretty crazy to see, like, how, I guess, uh, you know, different our two experiences were, but they're kind of leading towards kind of the same direction. Yeah, exactly. And I guess what made me realize it was I eventually tried to put some of these circuits off of breadboards and into uh, actual, the green board, like a circuit board, I guess you would say. And designing that made me swear off of uh, hardware for a very, very long time. It was just the most tedious work I couldn't even imagine. And then started to do because I was trying to do uh, a lot of the logic that I wanted to put into this into just using logic gates. So I would do all the like the Carnot maps and try and do it off of transistors alone. And that was just horrible, super tedious. Like I said, I asked someone online for help. They said, why are you going through all of this? Just pick up a microcontroller and code it. It would be so much easier. And, and then when I started doing that, that was when it really clicked for me that, oh, this is what computer science is. This is what programming is. You can go past the limits of what your hardware alone is capable of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think like one other really common avenue towards, you know, that introduction into computer science or really programming in general is people, you know, they love video games, right? And I feel like that's a very common avenue. Was that something that kind of appealed to you? I, I felt like I wasn't super into video games as a kid, but talking to a lot of my friends in college, that seemed to be the biggest motivating factor for them for going into you know computer science or software engineering is to you know, recreate those games from their childhood. I mean, I, I played around with some Halo hacking for sure. And you know this, but I used to be super duper into StarCraft when I was in high school. I mean, I guess it's the Korean blood or something, but I would play eight hours a day, every day, for three years basically got to like one percent in the world but i actually i don't that just really taught me how to get good at things it didn't really i don't think it had anything to do with uh getting me into computer science i i guess maybe looking at the computer for that long every single day gives you some sort of transferable skill i think growing up in in the bay area that definitely had a huge impact um i mean i think i was 
introduced to computer science, introducing programming uh, from kind of a younger age, right? My, my dad had, you know, textbooks of Visual Basic and like, you know, C in, in, in our basement, right? And, um, you know, we had like old computers in the garage where I can just, you know, play around with different things. And I, I don't think growing up and outside of Silicon Valley, I would have been as uh, introduced to, to computer science or really what software engineering is all about at a kind of a young age. And I think a lot of my friends also have that similar sentiment Growing up in the Bay Area, a lot of them kind of revolve around tech. Most of their future plans are kind of uh, revolving around, you know, Silicon Valley. So I think that's pretty interesting as well. Yeah, and I was reading something about someone's thesis about why... I think it was Paul Graham, actually, from an essay he wrote a long time ago. He was saying that one of the reasons that Silicon Valley emerged as the tech hub, computer hub for a long time, was also because of the good weather. I remember when... I was in Pleasanton and we drove past your high school. I was, my mind was completely blown that you had outdoor lockers because it just never occurred to me that, oh yeah, when there's good weather all the time, you don't need to just be inside. <laughs> and the Paul Graham had speculated that, yeah, having a garage, even in the winter, you can go out there and hack. It's just extra space. And that's, I guess, what one of the reasons that he thinks is despite all the schools or a lot of the good schools back then having been in the Northeast and other places, California is where all of it happened. Mm -hmm. No, I definitely agree with that. I think like the Bay area in specific has, you know, a lot of time with regards to the weather, right? It's like the kind of the same temperate climate throughout the whole year. And it's, it's a place where you can essentially like bike to work every day. Right. And on the out, on the weekends, you know, it's easy to get to Tahoe, it's easy to get to the Sierras, Yosemite, you know, Mount Tam. You can get that wide range, right? In the, win- in the winter, you can go skiing. In the summer, you can go hiking. And when you're working, you can, you know, wear a pair of khakis and, and a t-shirt pretty much year-round. And so I think that's pretty attractive, right? I mean, when we went to school and RPI, it's pretty much the, the exact opposite of it. I think that, you know, I like the novelty of it, you know, seeing, you know, living and, and seeing snow for the first time. But, you know, after that first year, I was like, man, yeah, I don't think I can really beat Silicon Valley weather where I can just go outside, you know, any time of the day and, and not freeze my butt off. So um, that, that was pretty eye-opening as well. For the background for the listeners, Karthik and I were good friends in throughout college. And having both recently graduated, you could say that we're experts on mistakes made in college, essentially, and despite having good outcomes. So I wanted to start to talk a little bit about that. Specifically, if you could go back to when you were a freshman and just starting to enter RPI, you you knew that you wanted to do computer science. What would be the advice that you would give yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll preface it by saying, I think if you look online or talk to a lot of people, and this is what I did before going to college was, you know, ask a lot of my friends that, you know, they were freshmen or sophomores in, in college, or they had just graduated college. And I kind of asked them, like, some advice you have for me, like, what, what should I expect? What should I do? And a lot of it revolved around very common, very generic pieces of advice that, I mean, yes, they are helpful, but you no, know, they're not anything out of, you know, common sense or out of the ordinary, right? Things like, you know, don't buy a textbook. You can, if you're just a little bit uh, creative, you can find alternatives online or buy them used. You know, there's freshman 15. Make sure to exercise a little bit. Don't eat 
pizza and potato chips at 2 a.m. every day. Um, you know, you don't have to be friends with the first group of people you meet, things like that. But, but I think after going through college, I kind of realized that college is good for two things, right? The first is that it lends credibility to basically unproven people very early on in life, right? It gives you this set of credentials that you have for the rest of your life. And I think on that point, right, like college's main value proposition is, is selling that prestige and that credentials and not the education. And so I think a lot of people, including me, kind of undervalued how much learning goes on in college or how much you can kind of extract value from, from that point. Um, but I'll preface it by saying if you're going to college just for learning, I think you're missing out on a whole lot of opportunities, especially in computer science and, and software engineering. Having worked now for a bit, it's quite stark how little you learn in college CS about software engineering itself and how to work in a team. Did you find the same experience? Absolutely. I mean, I think like when you're working on a job, right? In college, you don't learn about Docker or Kubernetes or React or Redux, things you use on a day-to-day basis. Um, you, you learn the fundamentals and don't get me wrong, I think that's extremely important. And without a good baseline, everything else in computer science is kind of moot. But no one's asking you to implement a binary search tree or a solve a rate optimization problem on your day-to-day job. And, and I think a lot of people place too much credence on that. They think like, oh, I, I got to you know my, know my algorithms textbook inside and out. I, I need to know system design or I need to know my operating systems and really understand it at a core level. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there's a lot of value you can do from just hacking together small projects on the weekend, playing around with different frameworks, really understanding why you like computer science, what, how you, you know, enjoy it, right? Like, I mean, we're all majoring in software engineering because we like it, right? And it's finding that joy. And a lot of that doesn't come from just you know, studying textbooks in the classroom every single day and spending time on that. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you bring up about not necessarily having to know the the full stack of CS. I mean, at this point, maybe 20 years ago, you could go from knowing all the details about the hardware to the highest abstractions possible. But I don't think now it's even possible. I mean, you'll still meet people who they read the story about Jeff Dean finding a bug that was caused in the their hardware servers by like a passing supernova. And they'll think, oh my God, what a genius to be to be that level of engineer, I have to know absolutely everything. But yeah, you're not you're not Jeff Dean, probably. Uh, and so it's so advice that someone had given me relatively early on was you should just know one level above and one level below of where you're trying to operate at. So for I mostly work in the services layer, but I should have some pretty detailed knowledge of the apps layer and also pretty deep knowledge of the, the platforms layer. Mm-hmm. Do you think school or college gives you that, that level of abstraction where you can understand that, you know, one layer above one layer below, or was it kind of side projects, internships, things outside of, of your traditional college experience that, that gave you that experience? Yeah, it definitely wasn't anything to do with, with the classes themselves. I mean, we've, been in classes together. I'm thinking of uh, Proglang, programming languages specifically, where you just go through the whole class and you think this is completely useless. <laughs> it actually turned out to be 
in hindsight, less useless than I thought. But you can definitely point to a lot of classes for sure where you're learning way, way, way too low level things or things that are just way, way, way too theoretical. So if we go back to someone is a, as a freshman, they're go, they want kind of have an idea of what they want to do, but they're not exactly sure. Like you said, a lot of the advice people give is super generic. What would be some specific advice that you would offer to someone who is a freshman, sophomore, pretty early on in college? Yeah. And I think this, this thing kind of struck me and it's not unique or specific to someone majoring in computer science. But I think it's understanding why you want to go to college. Um, and, and this kind of reminds me of a conversation I had with an admissions officer at RPI. I think my freshman and sophomore year, I kind of asked him, I was like, hey, like, what's the deal with like RPI spending so much money on, you know, these fancy gyms and all these sports teams and all these dorms and kind of the lack of spending on the you know, faculty or the engineering department. And he essentially said that students, incoming students typically don't care about faculty when they're looking at their undergrad institution. They assume that if the school is ranked well, if it's in the U.S. News and World Report or whatever BS report comes out every year, that the teaching will automatically be good. And so they essentially look at extracurriculars to decide where to go and like what, what school to decide. If they want the best students, they need to spend money on sports teams, fancy new buildings, the lawns, and because that's quote unquote what students care about. They don't necessarily care about the faculty until after their first year. Um, I think that's pretty interesting to note because there's kind of a, a divide in, in the college value proposition and what you're trying to get out of college, right? And so if you don't necessarily care about the education, you only care about the paper or the reputation or the diploma that comes with it, then yeah, just getting your degree in four years and kind of moving out makes sense. But if you do care about faculty, I think one question I, I probably would have asked a little bit more was, you know, what percentage of your first year classes are actually like taught by tenure line faculty, right? I'm sure like most tour guides at pretty much any of these colleges wouldn't have an understanding or would be able to answer that kind of basic question. So it's understanding like, if you want to get a good education in, in software engineering, is the college actually going to provide that? And if not, that's okay, right? You don't necessarily need to take classes uh, to get good at software engineering. And would you say that you wish that you had dove in more than you actually did into classes? Or would you put more of the emphasis looking back now on extracurriculars? Yeah, so I think, you know, RPA is, is a school that's has a good engineering culture, but I don't necessarily think their their faculty is, you know, top notch, right? Their professors aren't writing, you know, the top machine learning papers every year. Um, and so, you know, just sitting in class and kind of learning from them or doing research for them isn't the most advantageous. And so I think for me, if I had to do it over again, I would spend a lot more time hacking together on side projects, trying to work on, you know, different clubs or different organizations and building some of my software skills that you can't get in the classroom, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And you bring up an interesting, I guess, meta point of there's not going to be advice for every single situation. You really have to, in the individual case of your school, your, your own proclivities, determine what should be the best for, for yourself and, and for where you are in the moment. And this brings, this brings me to the topic of GPA. And this is something that I personally have wavered like to each extreme multiple times. 
And again, it might not be something that is can be given a specific answer in all cases. I'll say right off the bat, if you want to pursue further education, yeah, GPA is going to be like the be all and end all. But for someone who's looking just to get a job as an engineer, what importance do you think should be placed on their GPA? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with that, that first part, right? Like if you want to become an, a professor teaching computer science or you want to go into you know deep research in robotics and want to get a PhD, then yes, obviously grades matter. And that's, you know, your GPA is kind of king in that case. But I think for the vast majority of college graduates, me and you included, getting a job at a, as a software engineer doesn't rely too much on your GPA. And I think the only thing that's important uh, about your GPA is you know, allows you to get your foot in the door, maybe for your first job. After that, it really doesn't matter. So I think getting a GPA is important only if it's going to benefit you, you know, academically, if you want to pursue that academic path in the future. If not, I think it doesn't really add too much value. And I think instead you can spend uh, that extra time on, on developing some of the other skills um, you know, outside of the classroom. That being said, I mean, I think, you know, you want to try your best and do well in your classes and, and whatnot and try to learn as much as you can because those are like valuable building blocks, but try to get that, you know, B plus to an A minus isn't necessarily worth it in the long run. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree with, with that. And I'll also add that I think the reason that GPA tends to matter less in computer science is programming is a it's a pretty legible skill in that in an interview you can get a pretty good sense from the interviewer's perspective of how good the interviewee is at will be at their job. I mean obviously there's a lot of issues with the current way that software engineering interviews are conducted but compare that to even other technical professions, like a lot of our friends are engineers, talking to them about their interviews, there is almost no talk of direct questions about engineering. It's just what has your experience been in the past? How have you worked on a team before? What's your strengths and weaknesses? And in their case, it, may, it does make a lot more sense that they would want to be looking at their GPA as a signal instead of where in computer science, because you can tell if someone's good in the interview, it's not necessarily, the emphasis is not necessarily put upon the GPA as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think especially for software engineering, I think for the most part, the GPA is not the first thing, you know, recruiters or the interviewer kind of looks at, right? It's, it's the experience that you have. It's the side projects, especially if you have no experience. It's the side projects that you're working on, you know, things you're building um, and kind of the more hard skills that you can bring to the table versus kind of just your GPA, which is this all-encompassing number and doesn't really tell you if you're going to be, you know, have good, you know, interpersonal skills, you can have good communication skills in, in the office and then also provide value as a software engineer. Yeah, yeah. And to, and to wrap up the GPA point, I'll, like I said, if you're going to grad school, yeah, that has to be as close to it as a four as you can get it. But otherwise, learning itself should be prioritized. If you have a class that doesn't give you anything there's in my view at least there's no real reason to put a lot of effort into it 
But if it is a class that you're going to get a lot out of, you should try and do the best that you can in it. So what do you think is the most common reason that you've seen for students getting discouraged in their journey through a college CS undergrad program or choosing a different major, just failing, dropping out, et cetera? I think it's just a lot of people, you know, place too much emphasis on on the GPA and, and doing well in their classes. I think the first thing to note here is that getting a good GPA is not necessarily, you know, super difficult. You know, I think like you know, I had mostly straight A's in college and I'm not particularly gifted in any sort of way. But, you know, I also had the benefit of not having to, you know, work during college and whatnot. And I think like a lot of that is because I just spent a lot of time and focused extremely hard on getting a good GPA and it's just, in college is extremely gameable, right? Like every class, um, it's kind of up to the student to figure out like what's the easiest way you can get a good grade, right? Is it, you know, do I just study the textbook? Do I just come into class and listen to the lecture? Do I go to the TA's office and, you know, ask them what's going to be on the quiz the next day? Um, I think a lot of people that place too much emphasis on, on their GPA or, or their grades to kind of determine their, how they're doing in college and how much they're learning, don't put enough time on that. And they don't figure out that, you know, that aspect of college is entirely capable. But I think that also says something about college education, right? If you're only going to class just to, you know, get that A and, and bump your GPA up, you're probably missing out on like 50% of the, the information that you could be using and will be valuable, you know, in your real practical application as a software engineer, right? I think like one one particular example here is like, you know, an operating systems class, uh, you know, you cover a huge range of information. And, you know, to get a good grade, you don't necessarily need to go in depth in any of those topics. You need to know kind of you know, what the professor's like, you know, favorite topics are or what he kind of uh, alludes to during a lecture. And he kind of skips through like, you know, 80% of the core knowledge. But, you know, in a job, you have to know what difference between like a, a UDP or a UDP socket is right, and like how you can implement that, and then I think like if you were to only spend time focusing on that GPA, which I think a lot of people do, and you don't get any value out of it, I think you're measuring yourself on. I, I think you're using that as a benchmark to kind of measure yourself in your progress in college. And I don't think that's necessarily right or or the best way to kind of approach it. Yeah, it goes back to a really good point that you had made earlier about knowing the motivation for why you should be in school. And I'll say personally, yeah, when I was a freshman and sophomore, I think I had absolutely no bearing. I, I no, really had no idea why I was there. I mean, yeah, there was some vague notion of like my parents wanted me to be here. And also this is generally a good thing for your future. Everyone says that you should be doing this, but I hadn't internalized that motivation. I had no drive that was that was my own to try and push me through these things and as a result i really even in classes i should have been paying a lot better attention to just got horrible horrible grades those first two years and it wasn't until after i had gone out for a year and worked that i realized that okay some of some of this stuff is definitely important and you should put more effort into into it and that was all because i i now had the motivation was wasn't just given to me yeah and i think a lot of people 
college, you have essentially four years to try and find your passion, right? Like what you want to focus in in computer science, right? So I think like taking a lot of courses is not necessarily the best way to achieve that. It's also talking to a lot of people, trying out new experiences, like you said, you know, getting that kind of real world job application and internships and seeing what the real world is like and see if you do like programming a nine to five job, or do you like something a little more variable? Do you want to be, you know, in academia your whole life? And, and if you do find your passion within those four years, then you can kind of get a quick frame of reference and, you know, study that and kind of understand and, and build a good, it's good skill there. It's interesting that you bring up, that you bring up passion. Do you think that, for example, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm passionate about software engineering or really any sort of programming, but, but I've still made it my own profession because it's, uh, it's extremely lucrative and it is well known that you actually develop more interest in things that you start to get good at. So would you say that computer science is, I guess, your passion? Yeah, that's a pretty interesting question. I think like on the surface, yes, I think computer science and, and programming is really cool application. And I, I think like when you're solving a, a problem and you kind of fix it and you see the output there, you get that sense of relief or that sense of achievement. That's hard to duplicate in my perspective. And so that's what gives me a lot of joy in computer science. But I'll preface this by saying, I think this is a really common sentiment across the industry. It's also why there's so many new grads that kind of move you know, they graduate with a computer science degree and they move into, you know, product management. I think that's a hot field right now. It's because they don't necessarily love the feel of, of coding all day. They don't love software engineering, but they still, because of the direction they, they chose to, to be in the tech world, you know, they want to do, do something, quote unquote, a little more interesting. And so I think for me, working on those side projects during school, you know, playing with different frameworks, you try to find the joy of programming and you try to understand like, that's why you majored in computer science. Um, I think that's something that's really important and, and probably CS students should, should really take advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. And to wrap up the, uh, I guess, advice for students section, how would you, or how did you go about finding the presumably great job that you're in right now? And how would you change that process knowing what you know now? I think like my freshman year, um, you know, I kind of knew I didn't want to go into academia and I wanted to be a little more practical programmer. And so I was looking for computer science internships and jobs. And I was lucky to be living in, in the Bay Area where, you know, you look left and right, there's, you know, startups everywhere. But I had no like real, real skills, right? I think the only real technical course I took was a data structures course. And yes, that's kind of the backbone of all computer science, but I had you know, no other information or no other knowledge of basic algorithms past it. Um, and so I think my first internship tried to be as creative as possible. And there's a ton of websites like Intern Supply where you have like, you know, a thousand different applications and applying for those, it's all about a numbers game, but you gotta be a little smart. I think just submitting a thousand applications that are super generic and just fill in a company application aren't really gonna do anything. And so I think I, I'd rather spend time on just kind of developing a list of, you know, hundred or so companies and trying to find any connections or referrals to gain some edge to kind of improve my odds of, you know, getting an interview. And if I can't, then trying to write a cold email. And I feel like the cold email part, I think that's really slept on. I feel like a lot of people don't 
take advantage of it or ever learn how to write a cold email. And I feel like in college, that's the perfect opportunity to do so, right? You can never underestimate the power of a great cold email or phone call. And that's what essentially got me my, my first internship. Try to reach out to your network and then try to email the company and you know, try to add some value, but also try to you know, get your end goal there, which is, which is to get you know, an interview. I think it's undisputed how important it is to use your, use your network when looking for a job. There's some quote that, yeah, 80% of jobs are solicited through, your, through a company's network and not even put online. And those are really the, the great jobs, the truly exceptional ones. But the problem is, of course, if you don't have those network connections, like you said, freshman year, cold emailing can definitely be a really great way to bootstrap that network. It's funny that we, I don't think we ever explicitly talked about cold emailing uh, while we were in school, but it's funny that we came across the, the same conclusion because what I did pretty early on, I think during sophomore year was hire, go on Upwork and get a virtual assistant who was familiar with LinkedIn and just pay them like 40 bucks for 10 hours of just them finding as many tech recruiters as possible and giving me their emails. And I ended up with just this like list of 300 recruiter emails at all the top tech companies, used mail merge to send out some of those cold emails. And that was actually how I got uh, my job at Amazon, funnily enough. Do you do anything specific in the cold email? I feel like a lot of people... They, they try not to be super generic. They say something like, hey, you know, sorry for the cold email. I couldn't reach you via my network. Yeah, 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 yada. I don't give any advice on that specific, like how to kind of engage the recruiter or just how to get better at cold emails. Well, there's, there's obviously a lot of uh, boilerplate stuff that you should be doing. Uh, that's probably out of scope for the conversation here. But if you just look up, yeah, cold emailing on Google, you'll, you'll find it. But the more important thing is like being extremely upfront about why you're contacting that person. I mean, in the case of recruiters, it's pretty obvious, but like that you're trying to get a job, but I've seen people really beat around the bush when they're talking to a recruiter, instead of just saying like, I am extremely interested in this position specifically. I think that I would be great because bullet point one, two, three, uh, my resume is attached and let me know if you've got some time to chat. Very simple. Keep it quick. Recruiters are busy. They get tons of emails. A top level points of cold emailing. Be upfront. Be clear. Have a clear value proposition. That is, yeah, also extremely important. And keep it concise. Yeah, I think the only way, only thing I would add there is just the only way to get good at them is to actually just write a bunch of them. But yeah, going back to your original question, I think I got that first internship just from cold emailing and, and trying to hustle a little bit. And then once you have that first experience, I think the doors kind of open up and you have some legitimacy in terms of your skill you can provide to future employers or whatnot. And then from there, it becomes a little bit easier. You kind of have almost a foot in the door and there's so many you know, resources online. I'm sure you know, whatever college you go to has the job fair and you can kind of leverage that first internship into a second one and use that second one to you know, get a job or get another internship. I think the first one is definitely the most important. Yeah, for sure. Something that I always tell people is freshman year, you should really be going hard 
on the internship search because getting an internship the that first summer in your field of choice makes everything else just so, so, so much easier. And now let's bring it back to the present. You're working at Blend, a, what are they, Series D? We actually just raised a Series F, F? two wow. weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pretty exciting news. Awesome. So, I mean, I, I joined Blend actually as an intern the summer before my senior year. And that was, again, through just leveraging any networks I might have, trying to find any alumni connections that work at Blend, and then kind of getting my foot in the door there. And I did my internship there, learned a lot, loved the culture, um, and decided that that would be an excellent place for me to kind of start my career off as a full-time, full-time employee. And something I want to, to bring to the attention of the listeners is that it wasn't you didn't choose Blend because of lack of choice. I mean, you had an offer from Facebook and a few other startups as well. So what made you, like, what were the specific things about Blend that drew you to the company? First off, I think like Facebook is, is a great company, right? Like I think you know, they're building, you know, cutting edge software and a lot of their products reach, you know, a billion plus you know, people and, and you have a lot of impact and there's so many teams you can learn from. I think for me, I kind of, rationalize that working at a startup, uh, especially the size that that blend was, where it's kind of that early to mid stage, super fast, high growth startup would be the kind of the best place for me to leverage my time and my personal growth. And what that means is essentially, I think biggest investment for most people who are around 21, 22 years old, um, is just time, right? And the second best is, is learning. And the only way you can combine those two is just to join a, a young, hungry, hyper-growth company with a lot of top people in it. So you can work on projects. They'll, they'll basically say like, hey, we need XYZ because we're still growing and you're the only one here that, that can do it. So hop on this project. And that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, in my internship, they basically were like all hands on deck. We're building out this new third-party service um, and we're trying to replicate it in-house. That's that's your intern project, and so you know how to design this entire project, figure out the architecture, and then the back end layers and the front end. And I think I got a lot more experience working, uh, you know, at Blend than I would have at, at a larger company where things are a little bit more, I guess, segmented or or, or more. Uh, I can't find the right word, but. Maybe they gave you a little bit more trust uh, than other places necessarily might, out of necessity. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, that was something that the reason that I chose my current company as well. I mean, we both did internships before we joined full time, and in fact, one way that you might view your various internships is a basically a tryout to see if you like the company. And I would say it actually is ideal that you would that we both have done those internships before joining full time because you really do get a sense of the cultures. That's definitely something that I think I undervalued a lot when I was looking for internships. Like it, it didn't even it wasn't even a, a criteria that I considered that cultures are different, but that's really something that shows once you work at a few different places. 
I think one thing that a lot of people don't really value is that you know, an internship is an opportunity for you to evaluate the company as well, right? It's to understand like, you know, what are the things the company is doing well? What is, what aren't, you know, why is this company successful? Why are the people in here staying? And as an intern, you basically have the biggest excuse to ask any question you want and ask whoever you want, right? And so I think when I joined, when I was an intern at Blend, there was about 200 employees to 50 employees. And so it was a, a pretty sizable company, but you know, I just took the opportunity to slack my, you know, the CEO of the company and be like, hey, I'm an intern and I'm really interested in you know, why you decided to join Blend. Can we just have a quick one-on-one chat? And then I just message the CTO the same thing and try to get a frame of reference of what their personal motivations were, why you know Blend would be a good fit for me later on in my career, why a mid-sized company would be a good fit versus early uh, late stage company or early stage company, and really trying to you know develop my mental heuristics or my mental models in terms of how I want my career trajectory to kind of go. So I think that's something that's really undervalued is as an intern, you have the biggest excuse to ask like any question you want because you're there for three months. You have to get ramped on really quickly, add some value to the company, right? Build a project or do whatever your intern project is, and then you know, try to get as much knowledge as you can as, as fast as possible. Yeah, that's an absolutely essential point where two things, there's two magic phrases. The first is, this may be a stupid question, but, and if you just use that on any single thing that you could possibly imagine at the company of why they chose to do something, obviously don't like bug the CTO, like with every stupid question you have, but you're going to you're probably being assigned a mentor. And that's a really great opportunity because literally their job is to answer all of your quote unquote, stupid questions. And a lot of the time they end up uh, not being as stupid as you think. Yeah, I think this is especially true. I think in my first internship, I was almost too scared to ask questions because I, I wanted to, you know, I didn't develop that rapport initially in the first week or so. And, you know, I was scared to kind of like look dumb, right? I, I wanted to get a good I- I- evaluation, right? But I think you said the exact right things. The intern mentor is there to help you and answer those dumb questions. It's their job to kind of guide you. And it, the onus is up to you to ask the right questions and try to maximize what you're learning at that company. And doesn't necessarily have to be related to the core project that you're working on. And I think the more questions you're asking, the more, the more value you're gaining from, from that internship. Yeah, yeah. And when, when you're going into a new position, like not, you're not really expected to know a lot. I mean, you should know your CS fundamentals, et cetera. But company-specific things about the way that they do their engineering is super, super useful to know. And the only truly way to look stupid is when you just, when you end up hacking on something for two weeks and at the end, it turns out that you didn't need to do it because if you had just asked the question, it would have, uh, you would have realized that that was an extraneous thing to do. Yep. Totally agree. I think like asking questions is super underrated and no one's ever going to get mad at you for asking questions, but you know, I think it's, it's a lot worse you know, for you to do something and then two weeks later realize, oh, this could have been solved by just basic communication and just communicating or asking simple questions at the start of the project. Yeah. And then going back to what you were saying earlier about just reaching out and going to coffee with higher ups, essentially the way that it's been put to me is when you're an intern People love going out to coffees with you because everyone has their opinions of what they would do, have done differently when they were an intern. And they basically just view you as 
a blank slate, fuzzy-tailed bunny, basically, who has their entire career in front of them and doesn't have the baggage that people accumulate throughout their careers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, if you just go up to them or slack them saying, hey, I'm a new intern. We should go out for coffee for some time. I'd love to know about XYZ, join, why join the company, etc. Especially at, especially at startups where they're so, so, so eager to hire people right out of school. Hiring is even one of the, like it's one of the CEO's core functions. And if he can get someone smart as a new grad to join just by going out to coffee with them, a lot of them are super happy to make that trade. Yeah, and I think that's a good indication and a strong indication of, of the type of culture that the company is, right? If you go up to someone and they're, you know, like, oh, we don't really do coffee one-on-ones or we don't really like you know, meet up with people. I think that's a big red flag. I think for Blend, that was one of the things that kind of struck me was, was that kind of culture of reaching out. And so I think for Blend in particular, and this is not super unique, I think most startups their size kind of do this, but they had a small budget where, you know, they basically essentially paid you to do these type of one-on-ones and, and they would, if you wanted to get boba or coffee, it, it would be on the company for any of these type of one-on-ones. And so that was a really common culture where, you know, not just interns, but also, you know, full-time employees would meet other full-time employees just to talk about their work or get to know each other a little bit more on a personal level. And so that was a, that was a super good positive signal for me where I could ask these type of questions and the culture was such that, you know, I, I would be able to learn uh, as well. Wow. That's, a super, super good idea on their part. I, I have never heard of that before, but it makes total sense. How do you view getting better at at what you do? Well, I think like, maybe, maybe this leads back to the previous question of why, why I joined Blend, why I joined a startup. I think I have some theories there in terms of like how that kind of led me or how that kind of uh, optimizes my, my rate of learning right now as, as an engineer. Um, so I can go in more detail there. I think like, you know, my opinion is that, you know, everyone out of college should join that essentially this kind of breakout startup, right? Like you don't want to be second or third employee of a startup, but you don't want to be, you know, the a thousandth employee. You want to be somewhere in that happy medium. And I think usually these companies are pretty identifiable, right? They usually have, you know, the hardest tech interviews and the hardest applications you know, they're on the top of whatever ranking or lists. And usually they, they build the best technology that you use. They're like companies like Airbnb and Figma and Affirm and other products that are pretty easily identifiable. But I think like, you know, mid-sized companies with, with like a lot of momentum, they're most likely going to be success. And because of that, joining them, I think you get more credit than you deserve for being part of that successful company. And you get less credit than you deserve for being part of an unsuccessful company. So it's almost a, a win-win in either situation. And a, a lot of that is because, you know, I think a lot of these companies, right, they love, you know, young and ambitious people, right? And so that means that they love to hire people out of college and you have to work on kind of real stuff. And I think that's pretty unique out of most industries, right? If you're an investment banker right out of college, you're probably going to be, you know, analyst at your first job doing some basic paper pushing. But if you're at, you know, this fast-growing startup, and, you know, you join Uber as, you know, the 500th employee, you're probably building out Uber Eats and their new product line. And you're learning, you know, so much more than you would be uh, at a larger company. And I think a lot of that has to do with kind of the, the sharp people that hopefully push you. And so I think, you know, my day-to-day job, there's a lot of tough people 
that you know, have a lot of experience as well. And there's a lot of young and ambitious people that are willing to learn. And if the company culture is such that you know, people want to help each other to achieve the company goal, it's a, it's a lot of, you know, asking questions, trying to determine what the best process is, how you can solve the best process, how you can build tools internally to help you with that. Um, and so you kind of learn what success looks like from, from the inside as, as a company is growing. And so I think, you know, you get to work on a lot of stuff, you gain a lot of skills and experience very quickly, and you probably get promoted pretty quickly because those leadership jobs are getting created as the company grows. And I think like my, my viewpoint on, on larger companies, again, I don't think this is a knock on, you know, Facebook, you know, that you get a nice salary and you can, you know, focus on your career or, and your personal life. And again, they touch a billion plus people and, you know, sometimes startups have pretty vain and, and stupid uh, you know, impacts. And so, you know, I think there are benefits to joining, you know, Facebook, but unless you're able to politically climb, you won't succeed at that same rate, right? Working at a big company teaches you how to essentially work for a big company. Uh, it doesn't teach you, you know, core skills in terms of, you know, navigating as a software engineer. And I think a mid-sized company, you're able to develop that as the company is growing because the company is also trying to figure that out. Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, especially the point about the politics and not sometimes you're even if you're doing like the best job possible in a larger company it's not always your skill that makes the difference as to whether or not you get that promotion in a lot of ways you might be able to view a startup as just having so much more of that meritocratic uh i guess system where the people who really are the best like there's no there is no stopping them in terms of the responsibilities that they can take on because the team is so small. And of course that has its flip sides where if you're not doing such a good job at a startup, you're just going to be out. Like the no questions, you're just out. And at a larger company, you kind of have more of a safe landing where you were, you'll be maybe put on like a PIP, I think it's called yeah, performance improvement plan. Yeah. Where where they'll like give you additional mentorship and trying to make you successful, move you around a bit. But if you are, if you know that you're, you're a pretty good engineer and you know that you can make an impact, a startup is, is definitely where you can really accelerate quickly. Mm -hmm. I'd like to make a quick point there. I think this is one of the benefits of joining kind of this early to mid-sized company versus joining just a you know, 10 person startup where you're building things from the ground up. I think a lot of these companies, you know, they have existing infrastructure. The team is usually pretty established and you know, they do have some form of a user base. And so you're not building a lot of these building blocks from the ground up. You're really focusing on the most important parts of, of the job, right? I think like this is a pretty interesting thing, right? Like the creator of the like button, you know, I think it was Justin uh, Rosenstein. He was like employee number like 300 at, at Facebook. You know, he wasn't employee number five or 10. He joined kind of that mid-stage company. Same with the creator of like Google Maps. He was like, I don't know, employee like a thousand or something like that. And, and so to, to get an impact or to make an impact at these companies, you don't necessarily need to be the first or second employee. Uh, and you don't, and you will get opportunities as the company is growing and maturing. Um, and I think you can see this throughout Silicon Valley at some of these top companies where, you know, engineers make an impact and get that W on their record as, as a company success grows. Yeah. Yeah. There's the idea that one of the downsides of working for a startup is 
the lack of work-life balance. Have you found that that's a misconception or is that true in some cases? I do think that's true. I think a lot of my friends that work for larger tech companies, they're able to have a more balanced life. But I think it also depends on the culture of the company as well as the culture of the specific team that you're working on. Um, if you're working at a startup and you notice that your your team is really gung-ho and maybe you're not up to up to par, or you don't want to spend basically a lot of your time working on that project, it's easy to work on a different project or find value at a different team. Whereas at larger companies, that process, like Microsoft, for example, that the process of switching teams, it is doable, but it's a little bit harder. There's like uh, you know, you know processes involved in, in which you have to you know navigate. But I think to answer your question, yes. I think it's a little bit harder to find that 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 balance between just working all day and then you know having time for your personal life. But again, I think it really is up to the company culture. So I think Blend does a really good job of trying to balance that while trying to move fast. And so yeah, you know, there's like things like you know paid sick leave or, or paid time off. And if you're feeling like you know today or you you might have like a medium mental health day, you can talk to your manager and and they'll be like more than happy to just be like, hey, just take a day off kind of recharge, reset your batteries, and then come in and crush it tomorrow. And so I think it, it all depends on the company culture. And, and that's something you have to kind of identify throughout the interview process and, and kind of see how the company, as the company is growing, you know, how, that, how the culture changes. Yeah, yeah. Again, it just comes, it's knowing what company culture that you want to be a part of is just such, a, such an underrated thing. Known, at least for me, I, like I said, I wasn't really thinking about it, but it is so so important especially if you have an idea of already what you want your what you want your work-life balance to be Mm -hmm. i think one other point that people often bring up is compensation right it's like why join a startup when i can get a cushy job at a large tech company and get paid a a ton of money i think like you know obviously as a startup your salary isn't as great as you know the facebook's and google's but i think the risk and reward in terms of equity is a lot is is much much better Right, you get like essentially you know one tenth of the equity, but at you know one one hundredth or one one thousandth of the risk. The compensation is comparable at, at in the long run. I think like who was it? One of the co-founders of Facebook, yeah, Dustin Muskovitz. He he put it pretty well. He was like you know the two hundredth engineer at Facebook essentially made more money than you know like ninety nine point nine percent of all Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, basically <laughs> the, the people that had ten or fifteen percent of the cap table. And so if you're extremely talented, you can identify... It's not hard to identify companies with high growth potential and kind of low risk. And if you get an aggressive compensation package from them, you're going to be doing pretty well for yourself and, and possibly even do better than just kind of working at that large company. And if, if you turn out to be wrong in a few years, you can try again. I think that's the beauty of Silicon Valley and, and software engineering. It's you, know, you can keep doing this and this process is repeatable. And I want to move now to... Well, first of all, I, I agree with yeah, every absolutely everything you said, especially the point that you echoed from Dustin Moskowitz. That I didn't know about that. And that yeah, that's an astounding fact, really, when you think about it. Where I was looking at the distribution of entrepreneur returns. And seventy-five percent even the ones that are venture funded, seventy-five percent of them end up with the founder exiting with basically zero. But the the right tails of it are just so so extreme, where the median and the mean could not be could not be more different. Yeah, I think it's like a you know that small crumble of a, a huge gigantic pie is themselves like pretty pretty gigantic, right? 
So if you manage to look, I mean, not every startup obviously is going to be on the Facebook, Googles, but if you do manage to be on the, on the tail of one of those, uh, I think they, they pay out pretty well if that's what you're in software for. Now, I want to move on to your interest in startups a little bit more generally beyond just wanting to work for them. I know that you're super interested in fintech, health tech, education. How do you keep your pulse on startups in general and specifically in those fields? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, having worked in the startup ecosystem and having worked in venture for a little bit um, you know, throughout college, you know, I've seen essentially you know, what good companies look like. And I think I've had the privilege of being able to help some of those companies as they're you know, still growing. And I think um, a lot of it has to do with just forming communities within Silicon Valley as you're in one of these startups. And I think that's one of the beauties of Blend, for example. You know, there's like, you know, tons of communities on, on, on our Slack where people talk about you know, the latest companies in, in FinTech and what other small startups are kind of doing. Um, at five or six years ago, Blend was kind of doing. And so I think through that, you know, I started angel investing in different startups. Um, and so if you're a listener and you're starting a company in, in you know, fintech or, or healthcare or even education tech, um, reach out to me. I'd love to help advise or, you know, talk to you. So definitely, you know, shoot me an email or something. And then you said that you were trying to get your, your blog started again, focusing on some of these startups. Do you want to shout that out for listeners? Yeah, absolutely. You can, you can find that information on my website, karthiksresh.me. Um, I think that's one of the things where people have reached out to me and kind of, you know, asked me a lot of questions about the industry that Blend is in and how it's been so successful. And I thought I'd, I'd kind of distill that in some basic blogs. And so, yeah, definitely uh, check that out if you're interested in, in just uh, not just specifically in fintech, but also healthcare and education and kind of what, what trends I'm seeing and how kind of the industries are moving there. And I think those industries are extremely interesting, mainly because, you know, you know, healthcare and education, you know, technology is still pretty nascent and um, there's so much room to grow. And, and if you're at the forefront of those industries, you can kind of dictate which path they're going into. And so I think in the long run, in the next 10 to 15 years, those are going to be the top, top industries. And so it's going to be a pretty fun ride to kind of look back and see how much of those industries have grown. Yeah. And especially fintech is, I mean, obviously you work at Blend, so you know a lot of these developments, but it's just exploded. The field is exploding, especially now with the ramping up of some of these decentralized finance ideas. Where do you, what are you seeing in the fintech industry that has you the most excited? Working at, at Blend has kind of opened my eyes to you how far behind all these large banks and large lenders and traditional you know, financial companies are when it comes to technology. And I think like one of the biggest examples is right now, if you apply for a mortgage at you know, Wells Fargo, you, know, you have to submit this paper form and that that paper form turns into you know your w2s your income statements your pay stubs and all of that gets collated into this huge thick binder that gets passed around essentially to like 30 40 people in their back office some of it gets faxed you know some of it gets pushed around um, and so just simply automating that creating an online workflow just to help manage some of that back office right it's the simplest tech piece to it is a, is a billion dollar business right and so i think like there's so many so much room still left in banking where traditional banks can leverage technology that I think a lot of companies are starting to realize that. And we're seeing this kind of growth 
that will change traditional companies or traditional banks. Being outside the field, it's kind of hard for me to track like what the really important things going on in the industry are. But something I've really been looking into has been the possibility for adoption of digital currencies and in and other decentralized finance applications in more of these emerging markets or even frontier markets because they don't they don't have the infrastructure set up for credit cards or or any of the things that we take advantage of right now that's in some ways preventing this adoption has that something that you've thought a bit about yeah, absolutely. I think like, you know, decentralized finance is definitely going to be future for a lot of these you know, smaller countries where <laughs> I think you hear the common example is, you know, the currency gets uh, devalued and all of a sudden, you know, people are running out of their out of their country with trying to take as much money out of their bank as possible. And I think decentralized finance provides a way for a lot of those con- countries to manage their, their financial needs. Um, I do think there is still a long way to go. I think maybe, you know, a good example of that is the, uh, you know, Maker DAO, you know, the, the Black Monday or whatnot uh, that happened early this year. And so I think DeFi is a good example of an industry that is super nascent and is still building up. And so being at the forefront of one of those industries, you're essentially branching out and can create what's happening next. And so I think there's a lot of application there. And it's really interesting to see what's going to happen in, in the future. Yeah, and I recently read a piece about basically saying that if you're an entrepreneur and you're interested in fintech, the U.S. is not really the place to be. This was his opinion. Uh, there, he said that yeah, there's so many other markets worldwide that starting to really come online in terms of their technology infrastructure, telecom, like everyone having cheap smartphones that the I don't know, Chinese phone makers are just giving away for free, basically. And that's really causing a lot of extremely rapid progress in a lot of these frontier markets like Eastern Europe, uh, like more rural parts of India, some, and a lot of parts of Africa. Do you think that there is still a lot more opportunity in the US? I know you said that the, the larger players, at least, are, have been slow so far to adopt this technology. Yeah, so I mean, I think yeah, obviously you know fintech kind of is super popular in, in the U.S. and in, in the U.K., but I think there's a lot of application in other countries, as you pointed out. But I think one of the biggest applications that I'm still seeing companies try to figure out in the U.S. specifically is kind of using alternative data to evaluate creditworthiness, right? Like I think in the U.S., if you want to get anything done in a financial setting, everything depends on your credit score. And if you're a recent immigrant, and if you have you know even if you have a stable job and if you have the money to, to pay for something, you might not have credit score uh, because you just moved here. And it's a huge, huge underserved market. And there's still companies like, you know, for example, a firm, there's a huge billion dollar you know, company. Their model essentially lends them to try and, and measure credit worthiness. And they're still not able to figure that out. And so I think there's a lot of startups in that area that are trying to figure out alternatives to measuring, you know, a credit score that will still give them you know, give people essentially access to credit for people with, you know, thin credit histories. And so I think that's one of the biggest places where I'm seeing innovation happen in the U.S. specifically. And so that'll be really interesting to see, um, you know, which companies are able to pull it off. There's a lot of 
buzz, at least that I've seen, about companies finding different ways to raise capital other than equity or just debt. Specifically, two examples. A few SaaS companies recently have been essentially treating because they're low churn or their customers are low churn. They can essentially be modeled as just bonds themselves. And so you can sell that to to raise equity. And the second example of, or not to raise equity, to raise capital. And second example of a lot of the airlines, obviously they've taken a big hit with COVID, have started to use their loyalty programs, one of the most profitable parts of their business as, as collateral. And it's interesting to see that these are all applications that would come online a lot faster for a lot more companies with more of the, the base technology of being able to securitize, tokenize pretty much anything. And in that respect, yeah, I, I guess to answer my own question, I do think that the US has a lot farther to go as well. Finally, I'm always going to close out these interviews with some rapid fire questions. So the questions will be rapid fire. You can give as long as an answer as you want. But first off, how do you recharge outside of work? Especially now COVID has been, I think, upset everyone's schedules and we're realizing that mental health outside of work is more important than ever. So how do you relax? Absolutely. I think um, one of the upsides to COVID actually is I no longer have to commute to work. Um, and so that's given me an extra, you know, 45 minutes to an hour and a half every day. And I've been trying to use that time to you know, improve my personal health. And so I've been, you know, getting into running and biking a lot lately. And again, it's, it's the benefits of living in, in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area where you can essentially bike year round. Uh, that's, been, that's, been, that's been really good um, in terms of making sure I'm, I'm uh, in a good mental space and, and a good physical space. And then obviously doing a lot of reading as well, uh, both in the fintech space and then just other books that, that you know, friends and people um, have recommended. Yeah, I've seen uh, senior runs and and bikes on Strava, so keep going. Secondly, what text editor do you use? <laughs> this is a controversial question, surprisingly. Yeah, um, so right now I'm actually using VS Code, and I think that's because um, you know Blend primarily works in JavaScript or TypeScript, and so there's a lot of ex- extensions, uh, a lot of tooling, and personally, I believe it's a little bit faster than Atom, even though. Yeah, I'll just say, I think Visual, Visual Studio is actually pretty good. Okay, and for people that don't know, I'm a, a Vim diehard, so every other answer other than Vim is wrong, in my opinion, but that's okay. People can do whatever they want. Third, what book or books do you most often recommend to other people, technical or non-technical? Yeah, definitely not Sapiens and Shoe Dogs. I feel like those are the the most common <laughs> responses and the, some of the most overrated books. Uh, um, you know, so I think um, takes coming in. <laughs> I think one of the best books I've ever read was uh, Nickel and Dimes. It came out a few years ago, and essentially it's about a journalist that tries to work as a low wage worker in the U.S. and try to find out how to make ends meet. And so it's pretty eye opening in terms of you know how quote unquote an average American kind of lives and how low-skilled or non-skilled workers uh, are able to make a living in the U.S. and kind of how difficult that process is. It, wow, that, that is a, a book recommendation from out from left field. So I'll definitely have to check that out. Haven't heard of that one before. 
next. Oh, I actually had a couple other book recommendations. Do you want to oh, go yeah, into that? Yeah, or? Keep going on those. Yeah, okay, okay. Another book, uh, Grant, um, by Ron Chernow. Uh, this is a, actually a biography of Louis S. Grant, uh, one, of, one of the U.S. presidents. And I think what's pretty interesting about him, you know, in history class, you kind of learned that he was a president during the Reconstruction era. And um, during that time, there's a ton of corruption and, you know, he's not a super charismatic leader. And so I think he's like ranked near kind of the bottom of all presidents. But uh, I think the Spire did a really good job of kind of portraying his, his initial life and kind of how he tried to uh, hold himself to a much higher standard. And he was an extremely capable general during the Civil War and kind of how his life went from kind of this triumph and becoming president to kind of tragedy at the end. So it's a really good picture about uh, U.S. politics as well during that during that era. Yeah, anything pretty much by Chernow is just phenomenal. I've read, I actually haven't read the one on Grant, so I'll have to do that. But his other ones are just phenomenal. Yeah, I highly recommend. Next, what's the best movie or TV show that you've seen recently? Last Chance You. The last season, season five just came out. Um, if you're not familiar with Last Chance U, it's about, you know, essentially college football at some of these junior colleges or kind of two-year colleges and how they try to, um, you know, make it to the NFL essentially. But this this season, they focus on a college in Oakland, Laney College. And so, you know, having grew up in the Bay Area, it was really cool to see kind of that, that Bay Area, Oakland, Oakland vibe and Oakland touch. And I think they, they did a really good job in, in terms of portraying some of the the players and some of the struggles they face off the field where their life is not necessarily only about football. It's about, you know, so much more. So that was a really good show. Mm, interesting. Interesting. And lastly, and I'm still playing around with this question. Uh, so if you don't have a great answer, that's okay. And I'm stealing it straight from Peter Thiel. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Yeah, I think this is a, this is a really good question. Um, yeah, I personally think that, there is no such thing as luck. And I don't mean in kind of that, you know, divine predestination or believing in, in faith or kind of the religious aspect. I, I just think there's, there's only manufactured luck, right? Like opportunities only occur because of kind of the persistence and the dedication and the effort that you put in. Everything else kind of lines itself up. Things don't just happen for a reason, right? You know, if you commit to your goals and you have a, a good goal and you, you kind of set that purpose um, and you have a good support system, you know, think things will happen naturally for, uh, for you. Yeah. Luck is definitely something that people tend to complain about a lot, rather usually on the side of, they don't have enough of it, but I absolutely agree that if you just trust the process, which in nowadays, I guess is a overused term, but nevertheless, it is still extremely true. If you set a goal and trust the process, you may not reach that goal, but if you are doing the right things, something great eventually will happen. Yeah, I think it's especially true in, in Silicon Valley, where you look at you know people outside of the industry. They look at companies like you know PayPal and you know Facebook and Google, and they think, "Wow, just a brilliant idea!" And they just happen to get lucky with the timing. And, and cer- certainly, you know, timing plays a part into it. But kind of behind the scenes, you look at how much work and how much dedication is put into it, and how much time. You know, people you know, say, no, that's not a good idea and how you kind of fight back for it. And so I think that's a, that's a perfect example. It's Oakland Valley of how, you know, you kind of have to go against the status quo at times and, and just make sure you rely on, on your personal effort. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, their flagships, Microsoft and Facebook, they weren't their first attempts. It's mm-hmm. not like they just woke up and had the idea for Facebook and then made it billion dollar company that they had tried a lot of things before that. Yep, so. Exactly. 
we can start to wrap this up. So Karthik, thank you so much for coming on to Machine Learning Engineered. This has been a really great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me, Charlie. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. And if you just want to, I know we, we mentioned your website earlier, but if you want to uh, shout that out again, and I'll post in the show notes as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find uh, you know my blog and my, my information at karthiksuresh.me. And then I'm always on Twitter as well um, at this is Karthik underscore. And so if you ever want to send me a DM, I'm more than happy to uh, to chat. Awesome. Well, like I said before, it's great to have you on the show. And karthiksuresh.me is your website. So listeners definitely go and check that out. Oh, thanks for having me, Charlie. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.